Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to author Amanda Smith about identity, belonging and Bayrum. Ever Beautiful This Is Not America is performed by the jazz fusion band The Pat Metheny Group and sung by David Bowie. It's profound, timely and rather meaningful.
Amanda, if you're born on the west coast of Ireland, which is the dreary bit of Ireland, let's be quite honest about it, and you kind of spent a lot of your time in Trinidad growing up, but you live in Britain, what are you? A mix. A very strange mix with no fixed abode. So in these kind of strange Brexitian times, if that's even a word, are you one of the are you one of these creatures which we should kind of not like? You are you a globalist? Do you kind of believe that you're a citizen of the world? Well, I've got a, an Irish passport mm-hmm. with a stamp in it that is a citizenship for Trinidad, so I can live in either place. But I have no absolutely no English blood in me at all. But I've lived here most of my life, sort of on and off in Trinidad and then here. Yeah, I think I do feel a bit like a sort of global citizen. I could uproot and go somewhere else and it would feel okay. So you've got the Irish passports, you've hedged your Brexit bets then, really? I've always had an Irish passport. (laughs) So you're a writer and you're on your fourth book now. How does your sense of belonging or maybe lack of one kind kind of resonate through your writing? How does it inform the stories that you tell? Good question. Really good question. I think with writing, people who write and write from a young age, which I did, I think for me it came out of a feeling of probably of displacement, trying to make sense of things in my early 20s, um, trying to find, you know, where I fit, where I could fit in, Amanda, where I belong. Your early, your early yeah. 20s, was it sex, drugs and rock and roll? Go into detail as much as you like. Your mum's not listening. Okay. Well, I think in my 20s, I was having loads of really kind of intense, interesting experiences. And, you know, lived in Notting Hill Gate, had a great, you know, lots of friends around, lots of lively encounters, some romance. And some of the writing, anyway, came from that place. I think it came from, in a sort of Aeneas Nin way, you know, who's... You know, I loved Aeneas and at the time I read a lot of her journals and, and I used to have my own journals and I'd write in them about my experiences and, and then I'd, I started finding a narrative within those experiences and seeing that, you know, life is kind of made up of, of a narrative. I didn't have a sort of fixed abode, I didn't have a, a place that I felt that I really belonged and really, you know, could, could I didn't have a sort of community of family around, I didn't come from a little village with my you know, or my cousins living nearby. For me, I think that was a way of trying to connect, trying to make sense, trying to write about that thing that brings people together or what makes your heart break or what makes you fall in love or what makes you reach for things. But, you know, journals sort of was a place to put all that stuff and some of it was really crappy. And then sometimes I'd see a narrative running through and I go, ah, oh, that's a story. I can make that into a story or that's a poem or that's a... And I get quite good flashes of insight and I'd write as soon as I woke up in the morning and have my pen next to my bed with my notebook. And it was a way of documenting all of that because I knew it was rich. I remember at the time I lived next door to somebody who was a, he was a journalist and a, an impressive guy. I gave him some of my stories to read and all of that was rich material and that all went in the notebooks which then became stories. Family's also a source of rich material, isn't it? So you uh, wrote Black Rock off the back of your great-grandfather. Tell us that story. Yeah, so 
after writing a series of short stories, I then, I had a, an agent at this point and a really good agent. She said to me, you've got to write a novel. And I had no idea how to write a novel. Over a period of time, as I realized that there was a sort of recurring question that had been part of our family in Trinidad for a long, long time. And it came out of those afternoon talks, which I'm sure you, you, you know about as well, you know, like sitting in the veranda, six o'clock in the evening, everybody's having a drink. And, they, and as a child, I always remember them at some point in those conversations over summer holidays, the subject would come up of my great grandfather and who had shot him. And it was never resolved. He was, somebody put a log in the middle of the road. He was driving home to pay his workers. He got out to move the log and he was shot dead. And by the time they heard the sound of the gunshot, they, people came to run and see, because he was a very loved, very popular man and the killers had gone. So this was something that had always been a sort of question in the family, you know, who killed, who killed this man and why? I mean, it's still one of those unsolved murders to this day in Trinidad um, who killed Carl Brown. I let my imagination kind of go. There was always rumor that there was a, a woman involved and that was a sort of true part of the story. And I captured that and decided to write it from the point of view first person of the woman who was responsible for his murder. And that took me on that journey. How easy is it for you if you are sat in Leamington Spa or Notting Hill Gate to write about Trinidad? How I think easy Trinidad is, is for you to immerse yeah. yourself back into that world? I, I think I think it is so kind of embedded, you know, in my it's in my DNA, you know, and it. I think possibly because I'm here and I go back a lot, so I think it really speaks to me. It in a way that this landscape doesn't. I've, I've got those sort of impressions and those photographs in my head of being a kid, you know, and having that, those experiences, those colors, those sounds, those smells, those tastes, the heat, you know, and I think it affected me very deeply so I can, I can access it quite quickly. I also use a, like a mood board when I'm, when I'm working. So I'll have a mood board above my desk and that will have photographs that stimulate certain memories and thoughts. Um, so at the moment, I, the book that I'm working on, I've got a bottle beside me at all times of something called bay rum, which is made of bay leaves. And it was a, a sort of lotion that you put through, you know, men would put through their hair or you might dab it on your face. And my grandfather used to use it. And it's a very familiar smell for me. <laughs> if I feel like a bit of a trip down memory lane or I'm thinking about that world, I unscrew the top and have a good sniff. It takes me back. <laughs> so if you had to give up one, if you had to give up soca or give up a roti, which one could you give up? Which one could you live without? Ah, uh, oh, that's too difficult. I could. Well, my waistline would say the roti. What's your heart saying? I, 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 my heart says keep the roti. <laughs> Good, because you know what? You're going to have to convince me on the merits of soca. My parents, being Jamaican and all, you'll know there's a little bit of a rivalry. Uh, between Jamaica and Trinidad in terms of the West Indies. Now, us Jamaicans know that Jamaica is the, by far the superior island. Culturally, we've dominated the world, given it reggae and, and all sorts. And <clears throat> Soka hasn't has kind of struggled just to get out of the West Indies. So I'm not a great exponent for the, the joys and the pleasures of Soka. So tell me all about Soka and then why you've decided to choose The Hammer by David Rudder as your piece of music cannot give you a, a big sort of you know history on soca and why why i stand by nah, it but it doesn't really I have know, a history it's tinny tinny music 
And it's, no, 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 no. Okay, it's go so. On. I mean, if you listen to the beat, if you listen to, if you listen to Rudder, I mean, Rudder, I think is a master. He's got that. I mean, his lyrics. Well, that was the Martin, Martin Sparrow. Oh gosh! Well, now you're talking. Look, we can have a few masters. <laughs> and I mean, I remember listening to going to see him in Leeds. You know, when I was like 15 or 16, and he brought the Caribbean to me. I mean, he brought Trinidad to me, and it, the lyrics. I think the beat. The it kind of raises you up. He is an extraordinary performer, and he's a, you know, he's a poet. The man is a poet, and and his songs will live forever. Is Trinidad music for me, and I love Steel Pan. I love Sparrow. You know, I love Calypso Rose. The oldies, but but for me, Rudder was of my time, and he can he can pick me up, you know, from wherever I am, and make me feel good.
silver chariot riding to the sun, leaving fire in its way, spirits on the run. As we gather round that day, I guess it's the Sheila say, how last night you see a sign, she see the hammer on the doing pine. Same time thunder road she followed, you see? He done start the tune up and already. So, as a little bit of soaker. And for me, it just sounds like summer. It also sounds like carnival. So Notting Hill Carnival, mm. if you're in the UK, is that something that you frequent? Or do you, when you're in Trinidad, go to the Trinidadian Carnival, which is, I think, the second biggest carnival in the world or something, isn't it? I think it is the second biggest. As a kid, I remember sort of witnessing carnival in Trinidad. And then when I, when I was living there at one point, I was, in, I was about 20, 21, I was living there. And I remember a friend of mine who's a carnival fanatic. She insisted that I do carnival with her. So I got my costume. It was called Silver Fizz. It was part of a sort of, you know, they, a lot of those costumes look quite similar every year. It was a, it was a tribe of cocktails. That was the theme. So I was Silver Fizz. I guess there were sort of margaritas. There were, you know, all these different carnival cocktail it was the first time i'd ever played carnival and you know walking behind the cart you know there's a cart with all your drinks and hitting the road and drinking rum from that time of the morning i absolutely loved it i finished and i said that is the best thing i have ever done in my life i will never miss another carnival again in my life and i've never done one since (laughs) (laughs) i've never done one since and I guess it's the time of year, it's quite difficult to, you know, it's a very expensive time to travel, you kind of, you, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something here and I must do it again. Um, but the Notting Hill Carnival, I've only done that a couple of times. It just doesn't feel quite right to me. It doesn't feel, I think I'd rather not go, actually. When I lived there, I'd, I'd see it, but I'd, I think I'd rather not go because it's, apart from anything, it's often cloudy or rainy and you need that heat. You need the heat. You need to feel like you're burning up and mm. that, in that experience, I think. so. Well, I hear you about the weather, but Notting Hill Carnival. How can you not say that in and of itself it's not an amazing experience? But I'm going to move on you, right? Because I need you to explain to me how a writer goes about um, structuring their day so I'm presuming that you've got your little bureau, as you writers do. You've got your little bit of uh, what was that? Bay rum, did you say? Was so you can like you can you can yeah, have got my bay rum. You can have the sniff, the smell of the Caribbean. <laughs> but how do you actually go around organising yourself to so make sure that you get your words out for the day and you don't just listen to to radio for a woman's hour? Absolutely. That uh, distractions are, you know, the pain of the writer, and it's really easy when you work from home to empty the dishwasher or, you know, do a little bit of cleaning or, you know, the chat on the phone. It's really easy to get distracted. Like what you're doing now. Like I'm doing now, but you know, I think for me, it's the fear of not having the work done is probably the thing that drives me the most. Having at the end of the day an, an empty page of. It's just too difficult to bear. So I push myself through a kind of fear, I think. So generally I'll get up and I'll take my daughter to school, come home or go for a run. Every other day I'll go for a run, get back to my desk and start about 10, 10.30. And it's not always productive. I don't get into it till maybe 11.30, 12, maybe one. Um, maybe I get a couple of hours, a few hundred words, and then I go and pick her up and that's it. 
And so it's a, you know, it's a slow process. The, the, the most significant amount of work that I'll ever get done is when I'm alone, pre being married and having a child. I, I would, when I lived on my own in London, I would, I would have big long days where I would just work really, really hard without interruption. And that way you can dig in and you can really make progress. But this is taking little tiny bite-sized pieces of something that uh, sometimes I think of it like um, trying to land a jumbo jet on a garden path. You know, you need a runway, you need mm -hmm. time, you need space, you need something, you know, you need that space for it to land. And if I don't have it, then it doesn't land. You know, I'm circling and circling and circling. So I try and get that time, you know, occasionally my husband will take Amy off for a weekend and then I get a whole, you know, 48 hours and that's really productive. Now you talked about landing. Would you say an artist knows that they've landed, that they have the kind of the acclamation of the literary world when they have an Oprah Winfrey summer read? When you can say, hmm, the biggest media woman in the on the on planet earth has basically endorsed your book that must have been something to say you know what this writing thing i think i've i think i've got it sorted i know what i'm doing that is a nice feeling actually that was a nice moment and i think you know my first novel definitely there were there were some moments like that where i thought ah this feels you know this feels like i'm on the right track but it's never comfortable for long and i you know i'm full of self-doubt and well i constantly sort of make myself Sort of keep reaching and you know it's a it's a learning process and you know what has been quite difficult with like with my first novel right I wrote in from the point of view of a mixed race girl in Trinidad and I felt that I had complete sort of ease with her voice and the voice came quickly to me but I had quite a lot of backlash from that there in Trinidad which stemmed from you know who is this person with an English accent who thinks she can write in voice, you know, and and a mixed race. And I clearly look, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, how dare I make those assumptions? And actually, the fact that my family have been there for generations, you know, I'd sort of say that in interviews to make myself sound, you know, like I had that, that permission. But when the book was published in America, um, it was amazing. One of the best things for me was that the NAACP nominated it for an outstanding literary award it was shortlisted for that and that for me felt like such an endorsement and I suddenly thought ah I'm okay I'm okay you can easily sort of get carried away thinking you know that you, you're just okay but actually you're only as good as the stuff you're doing now and you've got to get better you might be able to pop out one good book but you know my first book did really well my second book didn't it did okay so I thought it was a better book it keeps you humble you're not being formulaic you're challenging yourself and you're writing from the inside out, a kind of interior process. I think that's a real privilege to be able to, to do that. Amanda Smith, thank you for coming on to Friday 15 and showing us that the best writing comes from within and showing us your innards in the process. Wonderful. Pleasure. Thank you. Now, just before we completely say goodbye to you, run us through uh, your books uh, that you've got out there and what you're working on at the moment. Okay, so there are, I mean, I've had several short stories published in anthologies and things, but the two books, Black Rock, and then the second one was called A Kind of Eden, which was a sort of thriller. And now I'm working on something uh, which is quite a big book. And this is about um, sort of 
oil um, drilling in the 1920s. And it's a major explosion that happened at that time um, in Trinidad where a lot of people died from an, in an accident. And so it's, a, it's about wildcatting. It's very sort of, there will be blood, sort of Gatsby, you know. So it's not, it's not as dark as there will be blood, but there's, you know, it's got that kind of energy of the time. And, and the working title of that, at the moment, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but we're calling it at the moment While They Danced. Um, so that's the working title, but that will probably change. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. first onto the scene with I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor. It debuted at number one in the UK chart in October 2005. The song was ranked number seven in Enemy's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Just stop the dance. 
written by Daft Punk, Pharrell Williams and American musician Nile Rodgers of Chic for Daft Punk's fourth studio album Random Access Memories, Lose Yourself to Dance is a powerful and relentless piece of disco electronica. Hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget you can follow the show's progress on Facebook by simply typing in Friday 15. You can also find us on Twitter where you can follow me where I'm at Royfield spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Now every Thursday you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15 iTunes reviews, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast. Please go onto iTunes and write us a, a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me where I'm Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music and great conversation. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.